If you're looking to sell your private company's stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com equity. Hello and welcome to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast. Now, Kate is currently in China for TechCrunch Hardware Battlefield in Shenzhen. So we are rolling with Danny this week. Danny, you have not been on the show in... It's too long. I mean, you used to be on the show weekly, it felt like, for, for a period of time there. Uh, I was always here, and then uh, I had a great chat with Adore recently and uh, got a massive black eye. Yes, that's why we are not doing video. So this week, if you go to the TechCrunch YouTube page, you will not see us. We are doing this across the country, but it shall be a good time. And before we begin, a quick little note from the uh, the bean counters over at TechCrunch HQ, which is that if you are looking for uh, an extra crunch promo code, we now have one from Equity. The promo code is, wait for it, Equity, all caps. And I think it's 50% off of extra crunch for a year. So it's a pretty good deal. Wanted to throw that out before we dive in. Now that aside, let's uh, let's start with quick hits, Danny. What is going on with Jetpack Aviation. Yeah, so I think we should start all podcasts talking about flying vehicles because given the <laughs> you know history of tech in the last couple of years, I'm sure that's going to turn out well. So Jetpack Aviation is a YC-backed company focused on flying motorcycles. Um, and they're, they're calling it the Speeder, which you'll appreciate if you're coming from the Star Wars world. So they just raised $2 million seed uh, from Draper Associates. So assuming that the technology works out and we have floating vehicles coming in the next couple of years, expect Jetpack uh, to be flying around in, in San Francisco, hopefully in the next couple of months. I mean, I always want this story to be true. Every time I see about an air taxi or a Jetpack or anything along those lines, my little boy ears just perk up because I get so excited. Because when I was a child, I would see movies in which people had Jetpacks, people had these kind of personal mobility devices, and I just get so excited. But today, all we have are little electric scooters that make you look like a dork. So I really want this to happen. Um, two million, though, Danny, won't go too far in this kind of development project. Certainly not, but uh, expect more money. And, and, and uh, that actually links right to our next story, which is Norwest didn't raise two million, but a $2 billion 15th fund. Um, Norwest, which is sort of not a corporate venture arm of Wells Fargo, but Wells Fargo is the largest backer of the fund. Many, many years ago, Wells Fargo was formerly known as Northwest. The company is focused on growth stage investing, heavy enterprise, the largest fund in Norwest history. So a big, big fundraise over there. Yeah. And what's really fascinating is that they had, uh, oh, they have now assets under management of $9.5 billion. So $2 billion in this most recent fund is a large percentage of their total ever funds raised, even though it's a single fund out of 15. So it shows that this is a, a, comp, or a firm raising increasingly large amounts of money, which we've seen now from, I mean, I feel like every other venture capital firm in the world, I think by this point. Well, absolutely. And if you think about SoftBank Vision Fund 2, which was targeted at what, $130 billion? That's like a 1% stake <laughs> of the SoftBank Vision Fund 2. So actually, it's a really small fund if you <laughs> think about it in the modern world. Well, I think, I mean, it's at once incredibly large and incredibly small. And I think that's what SoftBank has done to all of us, which is scramble our brains. All right. And next up, we have a company called Let's Do This, which has raised a $15 million Series A uh, from EQT, previously money from Serena Williams and Usain Bolt. And Danny, I think this is about endurance racing. Is that correct? That's right. It's an endurance events marketplace for, for athletes who are looking to do really long distance marathon courses. Think, you know, 30, 40, 50, 100 mile courses. 
They're doing super well. They've now list 30,000 courses. And Serena Williams and Usain Bolt joined in the seed round a couple months ago. It was a $5 million seed. And they have rejoined this $15 million Series A. Now, isn't Usain Bolt famous for being a sprinter, though, and not a long-distance endurance runner? Or am I conflating my... Or mixing up my uh, that, that sounds about right. Nope, that sounds about right. Uh, you know, he, he'll be a great board member. <laughs> Made that up. He's not a board member, but... <laughs> I'll, I'll just say this. Whenever I hear about like this kind of company, I'm like, I didn't know there were that many, many people out there who did enough long distance runs to require this kind of service. Because when I run over a mile, I turn into this sweaty catastrophe on two pegs. And it just makes me feel even more unathletic uh, to realize that they were doing so well, they raised an A so quickly after their seat. Anyway. See, I, my, my, goal every, my, my goal every day is just to get out of bed. So you ran a mile. I, my, I, my goal is just to literally take the four steps out of my bed and I'm actually podcasting from my bed right now. So there you go. I, I didn't make it today. That's the real reason why we're not doing video today. Just so everyone actually knows. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, but let's keep, let's keep going on about EQT because rumor has it this week, they're putting together a, a new fund, which I think is going to be about 650 million euros, which works out to, I think, $716 million. Danny, uh, how, how certain is this looking? Uh, it looks like it's uh, pretty accurate. So this was rumored in Bloomberg. I, th- I think we've heard some rumors over here at TechCrunch as well. Um, EQT is one of the major kind of growth funds. And, and really, I think the bigger story here is just how much money is flowing into Europe these days. I mean, in the last couple of months, we've seen a number of new firms come up, a number of firms raise even larger funds. Obviously, SoftBank has dumped you know piles of money as they have dumped piles of money everywhere. Um, and so EQT is sort of following that same story. But, but this is a really big fund for even Europe. Um, you know, almost hitting a billion dollars in U.S. dollars. So uh, it's sort of really exciting times in the euro ecosystem. Yeah. And one thing I saw this week was that there were a number of other funds that kind of came out, too, that I wanted to grab. Um, Salesforce put together a $50 million consultant trailblazer fund, which does something with cloud consulting companies. I don't know what that means, but it's, uh, it's out there. And on the Europe point, Salesforce announced a $125 million European focus fund earlier this year. Anyways, uh, also out this week, Angular Ventures, I believe, put together a $41 million fund. So even as I think a lot of us who are watching the market get worried about a recession or a contraction or a pullback, everyone's putting together huge new capital pools. So the game uh, stays afoot. I mean, I don't see any slowdown in terms of VCs raising at all. So I don't know uh, if there's much to be concerned about in the short term if you're, a, I don't know, a seed stage company, Danny, or maybe even like an A or a B. No, exactly. And I, I think you're seeing that in, in a lot of rounds. So as an example, uh, in the last kind of quick hit we're going to do here, a, a social network for motherhood, Peanut, raised a $5 million kind of seed series A led by uh, Index Ventures. And, and Peanut's big story is to connect mothers together, right? So uh, your new mothers are looking for friends. They're now expanding the market from just uh, not just mothers to women trying to also conceive. So you're sort of seeing an expansion uh, of their social network. But it, it's an interesting story. Um, and it just goes to show you that in this sort of post-Facebook world, that there's sort of an opportunity in a lot of these kind of more niche verticals now that everyone's online, everyone's already has their data out there, and they're looking for very specific things from different types of social networks. No, I, I think it's a really good point. And also don't forget that Winnie, another uh, company out of San Francisco, is doing similar things for newish parents, although they are kind of now focused mostly on, I think, daycare. They kind of pivoted a little bit uh, to construct their vision to do kind of one thing very well. And also a company called Progeny went public, I think it was two weeks ago. They do fertility benefits for uh, large corporations. I caught up with their CFO slash COO and kind of uh, dug into why they were growing so much. And it seems that the t- people talking about fertility is now much more okay in the market and people are much more kind of able to have those discussions. So to see Peanut tap into that, but I mean more like support 
women who are trying to get pregnant seems uh, really great, and I'm excited about it. And it's five million. That's a lot of money. Uh, we'll see what they do with it. Let's move uh, from five million to an enormous check, two hundred million. The the biggest news I think this week from the world of venture was that one password put together a two hundred million dollar Series A. Now that sounds probably a little bit silly because everyone expects A's to be between I don't know three and ten million. But recall that a Series A is effectively just a company's first major institutional priced round, and because they bootstrapped for I, over 10, 14 years. This actually counts as a Series A. And Danny Excel did this, and they seem to be on a roll of putting money into later stage companies that haven't taken on enormous capital. What's the play there? Yeah, so Excel has a long history of investing in, I guess what you call mature bootstrap companies. So you, firms like Atlassian, behind Jira, the, the ticketing app that a lot of developers use, Webflow, Qualtrics, Tenable, MessageBird, Braintree. All these were companies that were cash flow positive, grew using their own revenues, oftentimes for many, many, many years. And in the end, they ended up taking venture capital. I think the only one that I can think of that they uh, didn't sort of leave was GitHub, which ended up taking $100 million from from Andreessen Horowitz. But what's interesting here, though, I think in one password's case is just, one, how popular password managers are. You know, obviously, almost everyone has a password manager today, particularly in the enterprise world. And that's part of the, uh, I, th- I think, a d- dynamic here we don't necessarily see publicly. We're seeing it on the consumer side, but like, you know, Oath or Verizon Media, our parent company, you know, has a full infrastructure uh, on LastPass. Every employee now has it. You're seeing this in all the Fortune 500 companies. So there's huge dollars here. But the, the key factor here to me was um, one of their uh, competitors, Dashlane, actually raised a 110 million dollar Series D earlier this year, led by Jim Getz of Sequoia, who's most famous for WhatsApp, the investment that uh, made Sequoia, I think, a couple bucks, hopefully. I think it was more than a couple. Yeah. Hopefully they were able to get a McDonald's meal out of it, or maybe a happy meal if they're lucky on the dollar menu. But, um, you know, I I think this is a great example of a company where uh, I don't think the CEO really wanted to go and raise his money. I think they wanted to be kind of a bootstrap company. They wanted to own 100% of it. They wanted to go down that route. But they now have competitors that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars. And so when you're in a competitive marketplace with capital, what do you do? Well, you go out and you get a bunch of money. My question, though, is how much of this $200 million is primary versus secondary? Is there a secondary component? And then how much is it? Because one thing you can do if you're a late stage company that makes its own money and does very, very well is raise some capital from the outside and use it simply to relieve pressure from your current employees and other people that might own shares in the company that want to see some liquidity before you go out and go public, for example, and maybe sell yourself to Microsoft for a kajillion dollars. So I don't know how much of this they're actually going to use for like investing in the business versus kind of buying people out. But at the same time, it just goes to show that um, you don't have to raise VC the whole way through to build a business that VCs want to put money into. And the, and the flip side to this, I also think, is um, how robust the private markets are. Because I think a company, I, I, I don't feel comfortable sort of sharing the numbers I've heard on their revenues, but um, in a different world, you could go public. Like it's a 14-year-old company, very strong SaaS kind of revenue model, subscription, highly durable. Highly durable. You should be able to, you should be able to go out there and, and, and go public, but you're not seeing that, right? You're raising a 200 million Series A uh, from Excel. And I, I think that just goes to show you how robust the private markets are today, how much demand there are for these startups that are high growth, and the fact that CEOs don't want to report to Wall Street. And, um, you know, when they have the alternatives not to do so, they, they avoid Wall Street like the plague. Yeah. Well, one one we're not, and we'll move on. But I was just thinking about this, as you said, that they had this durable revenue. If you have a password manager and you integrate it into your life, it's plugged into your apps, your, your laptop, your desktop, your smartphone, you're probably not going to change. Like you're probably pretty bought into it. And so I bet they have very low churn. 
And a consumer SaaS business with low churn is rare. And that makes it special. And maybe that's why these companies are, are so able to raise these huge amounts. Because if you had asked me at the beginning of this year, will we see $310 million in two rounds going to password management companies, neither of which has a clear market dominant position, I would have been like, no, we will not. But proves what I know. So um, let's move on, Danny, to uh, a company that might be less durable, uh, DoorDash, which... <laughs> <laughs> it, it expires quickly. That's the problem with food delivery. Uh, DoorDash is expected to be raising another $100 million, which is actually for them not a lot of money. Uh, but the reason why I bring this story up today is because they are defending their prior valuation. Now, if you go back in time, Danny, you'll recall that uh, DoorDash raised a $600 million round earlier this year at a $12 billion pre, so 12.6 post. And it looked a little bit excessive. You know, how could they possibly be worth that much money? But here comes we think, T. Rowe Price with another $100 million check at the same valuation. So they are managing to maintain their per share price into this next round. And you've been in the VC world more than I have. I mean, to me, that seems relatively bullish given how much value is added over the last 12 months. What's your read? My, my read, knowing sort of nothing of the internal details, is uh, they reopened the round and they just expanded the last round. Um, same price. I, I It looks like you know, similar investors are kind of doubling down in here. And I, I think what you're sort of seeing is the value of having some comp data out of Uber, right? So Uber is now public. Uber Eats, which is a delivery company. Um, Uber just announced its revenue uh, for Uber Eats, I want to say last week in its earnings statement. Um, and their revenue is now at a $645 million, with the caveat that Uber has announced that it will not be profitable basically forever. Uh, in our world, a couple of years, you know, a couple of years out in the future, they'll be profitable, which in our world is sort of never but what I loved real quick is um, Uber CEO Dara did take a little bit of a swipe at DoorDash saying, quote, some other firms have been trying to use cheap capital to buy their way to growth. We've seen the capitals getting uh, more expensive and can run dry, whereas platform leadership is both far cheaper and more permanent. And so what I love about this is not only as someone who gets delivery, they have multiple companies heavily incentivized. I I've got at least $200 of coupons in the last week alone around the delivery space, but also you know, the question is, is what is DoorDash's future here? You know, is Uber going to be able to build on that platform leadership that they're calling it to kind of dominate this market? Or do they have a chance to be an independent player here? A couple of other thoughts about that. If you go back and read Uber's earnings, you'll note that the gross merchandise value, the stuff they sell through Uber Eats, the dollar amount of the, of the of kind of like the food and whatnot, very, it's, its growth is amazing. Their ability to take revenue out of that is less impressive and Uber Eats loses a lot of money. So if Uber is saying that other people are torching money, they must really be torching money because Uber's Uber strategy is very, very expensive. Now, it may be a great idea because it is a growth business at Uber that has seen its kind of core ride business slow down. Fair enough. But it's certainly not cheap for the company. And if they're saying other people are less cheap, holy crap. Um, and uh, Danny's point about Uber's profitability, I, Danny, they said they'd have... Um, full year positive adjusted EBITDA in calendar 2021 which is like saying I'm going to lose 30 pounds maybe while wearing helium balloons by 2050. Like it's like you're cheating and it's years from now. Like what the hell is that? That's right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, and one wonders, you know, given that the previous round was $600 million and they just raised another $100 million, like if they are burning as much as you're thinking they're burning, um, what kind of actual like timeline did they just get an extension on? I mean, are they buying like a month or two here? Or are they buying a couple of months here? And and what is that like, a bridge to? I mean, we we often talk about bridges to nowhere, but it's like there's a little bit of like okay, hundred million dollars gets you maybe one more quarter. Are they trying to go to IPO? Are they trying to get another round done? They just couldn't get locked in. So 
Um, it looks like it's tough. They're keeping the, the valuation in place, but uh, one wonders what's going to happen next. Uh, yeah. And if you do know, uh, email us. And especially if you have a recent financial statement from the company, we would love to see it. Uh, please write into equitypod at techmarch.com. Thanks. Hey, everyone. Don't forget, this episode is brought to you by SharesPost. Okay, now if DoorDash is blowing up and is doing the most insane things in the world, Docker is past its prime. And two things happened this week, it seems. One, Docker sold its enterprise business to a company called Mirantis, which was interesting and caught my eye because Docker used to be this kind of golden child of the venture-backed startup world. Also, the company raised $35 million and got itself, I think it's third CEO in like a year. Um, was that a recap, Danny, the new round of funding? Does that kind of reset the business for Docker? Or is this more of like a, an add-on so they can keep going uh, as they were? Um, we don't have the internal docs. I, I think it's 100% a recap. I think it's very clear that this was a complete um, destruction of the business. Um, basically, it, a couple of years ago, uh, Docker was valued, according to rumors, at $1.3 billion. So it was a definitive unicorn. Um, to think that uh, a $35 million round, I mean, we talked about a uh, peanut earlier, but that is a peanut round right there uh, going on. So, you know, for context here, I mean, Docker is one of these companies where, you know, we, we talk a lot about open source, enterprise, and, and Docker pioneered something that was really fundamental known as containers. And we, we don't have to get into all the details of containers. But basically pioneered a form of computing and a way to manage your, your sort of data compute in the cloud um, that everyone uses today. There's no one who doesn't use kind of containers. But, you know, the, the challenge is, is that after creating all this value in the ecosystem, they don't own any of it. It's an open source company. They, own, they don't own the name. They don't own the brand. They don't own the IP. There's no patent royalties. There's no business. And so for the last couple of years, they've been trying to find, like, how do we make money here? Yeah. And the reality is, is that Kubernetes, one of their competitors, which runs kind of uh, what's known as container orchestration. And again, we don't have to get into the details, but runs orchestration, makes all the money. Uh, and, and companies that kind of run parts of orchestration, that's kind of the layer that made the value happen here. And so Docker kind of just got, uh, this is a family show, so screwed. Um, they, they kind of got murdered uh, in the market. And, and, it, and it's an example of, uh, you know, in some cases, open source has done super well. Red Hat sold to IBM and just closed in July for $34 billion. So there is money to be made in open source. But on Docker, despite the fact that uh, containers is probably one of the big buzzwords of the last 10 years in enterprise, um, basically no value got created. And so the news here is basically that they sold off a huge amount of the IP to Mirantis. Um, they're sort of getting a new uh, $35 million infusion. Um, the chief product officer, um, Scott Johnston, will become Docker's third CEO this year, which oh is always gosh. a good sign. It's like uh, Bolivia or, you know, pick another uh, place. It just, it's a good, it's never a good sign. Don't, don't compare Docker to Bolivia, even for equity, uh, that's a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, it, it's, a, it's not a good sign. So, but, you know, let's see what happens next. You know, it has been reset. I think it's absolutely yes. a recap. Um, and now the, 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 the canvas is clear and we can see what ha they, they're thinking about next. Okay, so we have containerization. We have container orchestration. What is the layer? What's one higher? What's meta container orchestration? And who's doing that? Because I want to put money into that company. It's got to be the next thing, right? Or is that, that just be, servers? Uh, uh, servers would be like the base level, right? So containers oh. was the abstraction. of, So it goes servers to containers, orchestration of the containers. And then you have the application providers, right? So what you're actually putting in the containers. So that might be your web server. That could be your application server. It could be uh, your database. I nailed it. You said there, there you go. Uh, <laughs> Alex, your deep knowledge of the enterprise infrastructure space 
Sounds like you should be the new beat writer at Crunchbase News for uh, for enterprise infrastructure. I mean, watch out, Rod Miller. Here I come. Watch out, world. There you um, go. <laughs> no, this is this is actually why whenever I cover enterprise tech, I really I really kind of struggle because I'm always like the business side I can do, but then they're like it's going to be hyper converged on premise SaaS RAM, and I'm like ah that yeah sure cool all right um actually beautiful segue because the next topic I know viscerally because I ingest it daily, Jewel. Uh, yeah, rock and roll says our producer. Um, Jewel is amazing, uh, but not not as good as a business lately because it is laying off about 650 people or about 16% of its workforce. Those of you who know your unit fractions know that's about one sixth of its total workforce. They're trying to trim about a billion dollars. This is gonna involve cuts in marketing, cuts in kind of like government affairs type expenses and that sort of thing. Uh, they have raised or kind of sold chunks of their business worth a bajillion dollars. There was that big Altria investment. Um, but Juul has failed to get ahead of the teenage vaping scare, and it was especially caught up in the vaping lung illness fear fiasco. It turns out that was mostly bootleg THC pods uh, that were killing people, and to be clear, very bad, but also not Juul. But certainly vaping got dragged through the mud because everyone was very concerned about this and that, and that kind of helped sales. Also, Juul is, is stopping selling certain pod flavors like mint, which apparently is very popular, uh, even though Virginia tobacco is obviously the correct pod. Um, Danny, my, my thought here is that they're going to take their lumps and they're going to be okay because their business is both addictive and high margin. But I'm curious if you're more pessimistic than I am. I don't know if I'm pessimistic. I, mean, I think, uh, you know, Altria did go in to Jewel in a huge round what, last year. Altria also owns uh, a competing product, which is in a different kind of category, which is like, it's not uh, vaping, but it's uh, the, Ecos, the Ecos product, the IQOS product that they push. That's a competitor to Juul. They own they both they own both sides of the market, right? And so I think I think what you're seeing here is fundamentally Altria wants to navigate the transition from classic cigarettes into whatever the future is. And um, we uh, we are seeing you know this huge investment. They put a huge amount of product development here. The question is is like the regulatory environment, right? And I think not only did they not get ahead of it, I, I think this is why Altria got involved was Altria has been dealing with this for decades, right? Altria years ago actually was the only tobacco company that actually led the push for FDA um, regulation, partially uh, as a, as a competitive measure, as, as a way to block new competitors from entering the market, but also because well, at the end of the day, if there are rules, uh, now you can play inside the sandbox, right? And then Jules sort of came in and said, well, well, screw the rules. This is again, a family show. Um, screw the rules, and um, you know we're just going to go around them, and and it really hurt a lot of people, right? I mean, the market didn't have any sort of uh, certifications, any sort of standards, so you had fake pods again, not Jules pods, but you went online trying to buy stuff, and bam, now you're getting a THC pod that might be uh, bad. You had, uh, I think it was vitamin E or something like vitamin this. e acetate, I think, yeah, which sounds terrible, sounds it's, bad, uh, you know, <laughs> it sounds bad. So uh, you know, across the board, I I don't think the company's going to die for exactly the reasons you said. Um, do I think Altria will have some impaired uh, value? Absolutely. Uh, but again, this was a huge competitive risk to the company, for them at least. They hedged that future risk by buying a big chunk of Jewel. It made a lot of sense to me. That's right. And so I think for them, I, it'll all kind of work out. It just, uh, it might take some time and some people are going to be annoyed. But, uh, you know, for a lot of these kind of larger legacy companies, you have to, you have to sort of invest and lose some money along the way. So uh, I, I think it'll work out. Yeah, but question, going back to what you said a few minutes ago, what families listen to equity? One, I'm just curious about that. And two, you know, the point you make about Altria welcoming FDA approval 
as an anti-insurgent or kind of pro-incumbency position is very similar to what we're seeing today uh, with certain social networks and regulation involving social products, I feel. Because if, if, you, if you draw lines around what social media companies can do, Facebook will, will have a stronger position. And that feels kind of contrary to what you're thinking. Think about it this way. Who has the resources to meet the letter of the law and avoid the spirit of it more than the current incumbent if they're going to take advantage of the new regulation? The small company or the huge company? You know, I mean, it's going to be Facebook that works out. So Altria is a good example for that. I'm not saying that Facebook is a cigarette company, to be super clear. I'm not Mark Benioff. But I do think that there is some sort of analogy between incumbents and regulation that does work at a historical point. So I thank you for bringing that up. Well, absolutely. I think that's exactly right. And not only that, I I think when you're that large, right, when you're a publicly traded multi-hundred billion dollar company, uh, the regulatory risk of not having clear rules is actually a real discount to the stock price, right? So, you know, how much, if Facebook knew exactly the rules for social network, would that be 10 or 20% of its stock price overnight? If it could just know that they're in a safe operating environment, they're following the rules, and kind of all of these risks of lawsuits, different states having different privacy laws. We're seeing this with, I think it's CCPA, or uh, I'm getting the acronym wrong in California, the California Protection Act or yeah. Privacy Act. That's um, close. So that, yeah, exactly. That, that's my level of knowledge of that whole world. <laughs> you sound like me describing enterprise tech, that thing with the stuff yeah, in California. <laughs> exactly. you know. Sacramento is that kind of place. Um, but I, you know, I think in summary for Jewel, it, it's really unfortunate, obviously, for six of the workers there. Um, it's actually interesting, you know, highlighting the fact that we've actually had a lot of negative news, right? So Jewel was one of the highest flying companies. WeWork, one of the highest flying companies. Uber, one of the highest flying companies. DoorDash, all these companies seem to be struggling. Well, uh, DoorDash, think- not yet, because we, we only presume DoorDash is torching too much money. Maybe they're stocking it That's up, right. You know? That's um, right. But I would have added, ironically, Slack to that list, because Slack is now far below its direct listing reference price. Slack is still a very healthy company. Um, but we've seen a lot of companies at least have some of the hype kind of knocked off the top. And I, I think that in this case, we're seeing um, a possible value deletion that doesn't quite you know, rival what WeWork did the other week, but certainly could be a multi-billion dollar write-down of the business's long-term value. And that that's material and therefore worth our time. But uh, we have one more thing to do, Danny, and this one is going to be you, because you know all about Line and Yahoo Japan, and I don't know as much. So... For the fine folks that are listening to us today, what's going on and how, how is SoftBank somehow involved? Yeah, so let, let's step back. So um, SoftBank is run by Masayoshi-san. And obviously with the Vision Fund, WeWork, all this dynamics have been going on for the last couple of months. Um, we heard rumors in the last week that T-Mobile CEO uh, John Legere might take over as CEO of WeWork. Right. So uh, WeWork is now run by two telecom CEOs uh, from, from Sprint and potentially from T-Mobile, which are actually merging right now at the same time. But let's go back over to Japan. Um, In Japan, SoftBank is a telco, and its core cash flow and economic model is fundamentally wireless services. Um, In that market today, there is increasing competition. So SoftBank for years has sort of had this nice dynamic where they had high prices, little competition, um, and they've just been able to kind of plow the cash into a bunch of other businesses. Um, that's been changing because the Japanese government has been doubling down, trying to lower prices for consumers. And one of the top e-commerce players in Japan, Rakuten, is introducing their own competing uh, wireless service provider against SoftBank. And so suddenly SoftBank is facing all of these dynamics where um, they need the cash to cover WeWork, they need the cash to cover the Vision Fund, they have huge obligations there, and their cash cow is potentially under risk. 
And so when you have all that context, you go over here, Yahoo Japan is actually owned through the massive corporate hierarchy by SoftBank. Um, it's owned by a company called Z Holdings, which is the most inspiring name on the on the on the planet. It's terrible. Um, good good job. It, 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 they're saving money on the marketing costs these days, so <laughs> they're picking letters of the alphabet. I mean, they save money on the characters. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Z, fine. Why not? Just you know, w? if you type less characters on the keyboards, you don't have to replace them as often, so you can cut down on your hardware costs. But um, and and so Yahoo Japan uh, is a telco marketing kind of company. Um, and they are in talks to to merge with one of the leading uh, messaging apps, uh, Line, which is run by Naver, um, rebranded as Line. It actually created an app that became so popular that it just rebranded the whole company around um, Line. And the two of them are talking about merging. And so what's going on here is that you're suddenly seeing um, a very popular app, this kind of telco marketing uh, play all kind of combined together. And it's really a beachhead to protect SoftBank, SoftBank Vision Fund, and all the economics there uh, from competition. Is this going to be another super app that, that brings together tons and tons of stuff in one location? Or is this more like a loose collection of services that will be spread out around the internet? I, I'm, getting, I'm struggling to get my, my, my mind around what this actually looks like in the market. I think you're starting to say, Tencent wouldn't be a bad comp in the sense that um, there are a bunch of apps. So Line not only has Line, the messenger app, but it also mm -hmm. has Line Pay, which is a very popular payments app. Line Taxi, which is a very popular Uber competitor in some countries. Obviously, Yahoo Japan has its own kind of portal services, Messenger Mail, and a bunch of others. And so altogether, it's sort of a platform play. I, I don't know if it's going to be one app like a WeChat, but it is a platform play where they're going to touch on a bunch of different areas. And to be clear, um, because this is a Verizon media show, um, which owns Yahoo, Yahoo and Yahoo Japan are actually not the same company. As part of it, they actually are completely separate. So they're just using the name. They were at some point deeply connected way back in history that no one gives it. Uh, I almost said another not family word, but no one gives a crap about. Yes, I, I just want to point out though, that by pointing out you didn't have to do a disclosure, you made a disclosure that was very ironic and very meta. I made a disclosure that there's no disclosure. Exactly, but now everyone's disclosed about the non-disclosure. Okay, we've made we've covered the bases essentially. We're not like the Astros, and if you got that joke, ten points. All right, uh, let's wrap up with uh, just two sentences on WeWork because I know everyone's very tired of it. But uh, Danny, this week the company's Q3 results came out essentially. And they lost, I think it was $1.25 billion against $943 million in revenue. Now, uh, the company pulled this IPO September 30 of this year, so at the very end of Q3. So the results we're seeing are probably the last results of what you could call old WeWork before they fired the CEO and got a new set of leadership and changed the plans and began divestments. But this gives us kind of a final high watermark for how to lose money because as we all know, a net loss isn't the same thing as free cash flow. The latter can be larger than the former. And so we know the company was definitely spending more than $2 for every revenue, uh, dollar revenue brought in, but it could actually even be worse than that. More TK, TK when we get the math. Danny, anything you want to add to that? Well, certainly, uh, you know, the company is going aggressively to cut costs. In the last week, hundreds of people have lost their jobs based on what we've heard. They've shuttered a number of brands they have acquired over the last year, such as Flatiron School and some others. And on top of that, at least according to some of my interlocutors at WeWork locations, um, the services provided within WeWork have declined. Lights are turning off earlier in the office. Free food has declined quickly. In some places, I've heard that forks are no longer provided. And so I think we are going to see is both at the high level, at the low level, at the detailed level, WeWork is cutting back quickly to try to rein in costs. And I think we're going to see more negative news coming out for at least the next couple of months until they can write the ship over there. Yep. So expect more for us on that topic. But in the meantime, Danny, we got to leave it there. Thank you for, uh, for joining us. I've missed you. 
Good to hear your voice and see your face. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. We'll see you again soon. You can find us on Twitter at Alex and at Kate Clark Tweets, or you can email us at equitypod at techcrunch.com. And we are now on YouTube. Watch the full episode on the TechCrunch YouTube page. And if you really want to support the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes. And you can also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and all the other places where you get podcasts. And a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, And we will see you all right here next week.